An American of Chinese ancestry got into big trouble when the private school at which he was teaching had a public discussion of the American bombing of Hiroshima. He recalled how, as someone growing up in China, he had rejoiced when he heard of the bombing, knowing that it could deliver his people from the horrors inflicted on them by the Japanese. That, of course, was not the politically correct response as he soon discovered from the backlash, hostility, and ostracism that eventually culminated in his leaving the school. The anointed do not want anyone upsetting their vision. When they say diversity, this is not what they have in mind. Hiroshima has become one of the many symbols of a countercultural hostility to America among the intelligentsia in general and the revisionist historians in particular. The fiftieth anniversary of the bombing of Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, galvanized Newsweek magazine into Monday morning quarterbacking half a century after that Sunday. The revisionist line is that it was unnecessary to bomb Hiroshima. We could have invaded, we could have negotiated a settlement, we could have done all sorts of things. Newsweek magazine's estimate today is that there might have been 20,000 Americans killed in an invasion of Japan. This is quite a contrast with the estimates of the people who had the heavy responsibility of fighting the war at the time. General Douglas MacArthur, who had been selected to command the invasion of Japan before the atomic bomb was tested and shown to work, told Secretary of War Stimson to expect more than a million American casualties alone. British Prime Minister Winston Churchill also expected more than a million American casualties, together with half a million casualties among the British troops who were scheduled to hit the beaches with the Americans. Anyone familiar with the history of the Japanese soldiers' bitter resistance to the death, very few were captured alive, will have no trouble understanding why such huge casualties were expected. American Marines lost more than 5,000 men taking the little island of Iwo Jima, and the Japanese themselves suffered more than 100,000 deaths when Americans captured Japan's outlying island of Okinawa. That was more than were killed at Hiroshima or Nagasaki. Newsweek's pushover scenario, which would have had Japan defeated in 90 days, would be funny if it were not so sick. Winston Churchill's estimate to the House of Commons would have had the war with Japan ending in 1946, and the Pentagon's estimate was that Japan might even hold out until 1947. Not only was there a Japanese army which had proven its toughness and skill on many a battlefield, there were 5,000 kamikaze planes ready for suicide attacks on Americans invading their homeland. If these planes managed to take out just five Americans each, they alone would have killed more troops than those in Newsweek's rosy scenario. Japan's civilian population, including children, were also being mobilized and trained in suicide attacks on enemy troops and tanks. It would have been one of the great bloodbaths of all time. Of course, Japan could have been defeated without the atomic bomb. But at what cost in lives of people killed in other ways, and in larger numbers? The other tack taken by the revisionist historians is to say that Japan was ready to surrender before the atomic bombs were dropped. The most obvious question is, why didn't they do it then? Indeed, why didn't they do it after Hiroshima was bombed, and thereby spare Nagasaki? Whatever negotiations may have been going on behind the scenes, surrender was by no means a done deal. 
Even after both cities had been destroyed, it took the unprecedented intervention of the emperor himself to get the military men to agree to surrender. And even as the emperor's message was being broadcast, some military officers were killed trying to storm the studio where the broadcast originated. The real question is not whether Japan was willing to negotiate some kind of end to the war, but whether it was ready to accept the terms being offered, which involved not merely military capitulation, but acceptance of American occupation of their homeland. It was this occupation, like the occupation of Germany, which turned a militaristic nation that had launched several wars in recent times into a peaceful and democratic country. This was an historic achievement, made possible by the terms of surrender, which in turn were made possible by the two atomic bombs. On net balance, this saved not only American and British lives, but even Japanese lives, not to mention the lives of people in Asia, like our Chinese-American schoolteacher, who told a bitter truth which the anointed did not want to hear. One of the reasons our children do not measure up academically to children in other countries is that so much time is spent in American classrooms twisting our history for ideological purposes. How would you feel if you were a Native American who saw the European invaders taking away your land is the kind of question our children are likely to be confronted with in our schools. It is a classic example of trying to look at the past with the assumptions and the ignorance of the present. One of the things we take for granted today is that it is wrong to take other people's land by force. Neither American Indians nor the European invaders believed that. Both took other people's land by force, as did Asians, Africans, Arabs, Polynesians, and others. The Indians no doubt regretted losing so many battles, but that is wholly different from saying that they thought battles were the wrong way to settle the question of who would control the land. Today's child cannot possibly put himself or herself in the mindset of Indians centuries ago without infinitely more knowledge of history than our schools have ever taught. Nor is understanding history the purpose of such questions. The purpose is to score points against Western society. In short, propaganda has replaced education as the goal of too many educators. Schools are not the only institutions that twist history to score ideological points. Never forget that they owned lots of slaves was the huge headline across the front page of the New York Times book review section in its December 14, 2004 issue. Inside was an indictment of George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. Of all the tragic facts about the history of slavery, the most astonishing to an American today is that, although slavery was a worldwide institution for thousands of years, nowhere in the world was slavery a controversial issue prior to the 18th century. People of every race and color were enslaved, and enslaved others. White people were still being bought and sold as slaves in the Ottoman Empire, decades after American blacks were freed. Everyone hated the idea of being a slave, but few had any qualms about enslaving others. Slavery was just not an issue, not even among intellectuals, much less among political leaders, until the 18th century, and then it was an issue only in Western civilization. 
Among those who turned against slavery in the eighteenth century were George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Patrick Henry, and other American leaders. You could research all of eighteenth-century Africa or Asia or the Middle East without finding any comparable rejection of slavery there. But who is singled out for scathing criticism today? American leaders of the eighteenth century. Deciding that slavery was wrong was much easier than deciding what to do with millions of people from another continent, of another race, and without any historical preparation for living as free citizens in a society like that of the United States, where they were twenty percent of the total population. It is clear from the private correspondence of Washington, Jefferson, and many others that their moral rejection of slavery was unambiguous, but the practical question of what to do now had them baffled. That would remain so for more than half a century. In 1862, a ship carrying slaves from Africa to Cuba, in violation of a ban on the international slave trade, was captured on the high seas by the U.S. Navy. The crew were imprisoned, and the captain was hanged in the United States, despite the fact that slavery itself was still legal at the time in Africa, in Cuba, and in the United States. What does this tell us? That enslaving people was considered an abomination— but what to do with millions of people who were already enslaved was not equally clear. That question was finally answered by a war in which one life was lost for every six people freed. Maybe that was the only answer. But don't pretend today that it was an easy answer, or that those who grappled with the dilemma in the eighteenth century were some special villains, when most leaders and most people around the world at that time saw nothing wrong with slavery. Incidentally, the September 2004 issue of National Geographic had an article about the millions of people still enslaved around the world right now. But where was the moral indignation about that? Slavery Nowhere have intellectuals seen racial issues as issues about intertemporal abstractions more so than in discussions of slavery. Moreover, few facts of history have been so distorted by highly selective filtering as has the history of slavery. To many people today, slavery means white people holding black people in bondage. The vast millions of people around the world who were neither white nor black, but who were either slaves or enslavers for centuries, fade out of this vision of slavery as if they had never existed, even though they may well have outnumbered both blacks and whites. It has been estimated that there were more slaves in India than in the entire Western Hemisphere. China, during the era of slavery, has been described as one of the largest and most comprehensive markets for the exchange of human beings in the world. Slaves were a majority of the population in some of the cities in Southeast Asia. At some period or other in history, as John Stuart Mill pointed out, almost every people now civilized have consisted, in majority, of slaves. When Abraham Lincoln said, If slavery is not wrong, nothing is wrong, he was expressing an idea peculiar to Western civilization at that time, and by no means universally accepted throughout Western civilization. What seems almost incomprehensible today is that there was no serious challenge to the moral legitimacy of slavery prior to the 18th century. 
Christian monasteries in Europe and Buddhist monasteries in Asia both had slaves. Even Thomas More's fictional ideal society, Utopia, had slaves. Although intellectuals today may condemn slavery as a historic evil of our society, what was peculiar about Western society was not that it had slaves, like other societies around the world, but that it was the first civilization to turn against slavery, and that it spent more than a century destroying slavery, not only within Western civilization itself, but also in other countries around the world, over the often bitter and sometimes armed resistance of people in other societies. Only the overwhelming military power of Western nations during the age of imperialism made this possible. Slavery did not quietly die out of its own accord. It went down fighting to the bitter end in countries around the world, and it has still not totally died out to this day in parts of the Middle East and Africa. It is the image of racial slavery, white people enslaving black people, that has been indelibly burned into the consciousness of both black and white Americans today by the intelligentsia, and not simply as a fact about the past, but as a causal factor used to explain much of the present, and an enduring moral condemnation of the enslaving race. Yet two crucial facts have been filtered out of this picture. One, the institution of slavery was not based on race, and two, whites as well as blacks were enslaved. The very word slave is derived from the name of a European people, Slavs, who were enslaved for centuries before the first African was brought in bondage to the Western Hemisphere. It was not only in English that the word for slave derived from the word for Slav, the same was true in various other European languages and in Arabic. For most of the history of slavery, which covers most of the history of the human race, most slaves were not racially different from those who enslaved them. Not only did Europeans enslave Europeans, Asians enslaved other Asians, Africans enslaved other Africans, Polynesians enslaved other Polynesians, and the indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere enslaved other indigenous peoples of the Western Hemisphere. Moreover, after it became both technologically and economically feasible to transport masses of slaves from one continent to another, that is, to have a whole population of slaves of a different race, Europeans as well as Africans were enslaved and transported from their native lands to bondage on another continent. Pirates alone transported a million Europeans as slaves to the Barbary coast of North Africa at least twice as many European slaves as there were African slaves transported to the United States and to the thirteen colonies from which it was formed. Moreover, white slaves were still being bought and sold in the Islamic world decades after blacks had been freed in the United States. What marked the modern era of slavery in the West was the fact that, as distinguished historian Daniel Borston pointed out, now, for the first time in Western history, the status of slave coincided with the difference of race. But to claim that race or racism was the basis of slavery is to cite as a cause something that happened thousands of years after its supposed effect. As for the legacy of slavery in the world of today, that is something well worth investigating, as distinguished from simply making sweeping assumptions. Too many assumptions that have been made about the effects of slavery on both blacks and whites will not stand up under scrutiny. Back during the era of slavery in the United States, 
Such prominent writers as the French visitor and observer Alexis de Tocqueville, northern traveler in the antebellum South, Frederick Law Olmsted, and prominent southern writer Hinton Helper all pointed to striking differences between the North and the South, and attributed the deficiencies of the southern region to the effects of slavery on the white population of the South. These differences between northern and southern whites were not merely perceptions or stereotypes, they were factually demonstrable in areas ranging from literacy rates to rates of unwed motherhood, as well as in attitudes toward work and violence. But attributing these differences to slavery ignored the fact that the ancestors of white southerners differed in these same ways from the ancestors of white northerners, when they both lived in different parts of Britain and when neither had ever seen a black slave. Does the moral enormity of slavery give it any more decisive causal weight in explaining the situation of blacks today than it did in explaining that of whites in the antebellum South? There is no a priori answer to that question, which must be examined empirically, like many other questions. The fact that so many black families today consist of women with fatherless children has been said by many to be a legacy of slavery. Yet most black children grew up in two-parent families, even under slavery itself, and for generations thereafter. As recently as 1960, two-thirds of black children were still living in two-parent families. A century ago, a slightly higher percentage of blacks were married than were whites. In some years, a slightly higher percentage of blacks were in the labor force than were whites. The reasons for changes for the worse in these and other patterns must be sought in our own times. Whatever the reasons for the disintegration of the black family, it escalated to the current disastrous level well over a century after the end of slavery, though less than a generation after a large expansion of the welfare state and its accompanying non-judgmental ideology. To say that slavery will not bear the full weight of responsibility for all subsequent social problems among black Americans is not to say that it had negligible consequences among either blacks or whites, or that its consequences ended when slavery itself ended. But this is only to say that answers to questions about either slavery or race must be sought in facts, not in assumptions or visions and certainly not in attempts to reduce questions of causation to only those which provide moral melodramas and an opportunity for the intelligentsia to be on the side of the angels. Just as Western Europeans in post-Roman times benefited from the fact that their ancestors had been conquered by the Romans, with all the brutality and oppression that entailed, blacks in America today have a far higher standard of living than most Africans in Africa, as a result of their ancestors being enslaved, with all the injustices and abuses that entailed. There is no question that both conquest and enslavement were traumatic experiences for those on whom they were inflicted, nor is either morally justified by whatever benefits might come of this to subsequent generations of their offspring. But history cannot be undone, nor does conceiving of races as intertemporal abstractions have any such track record as to make it look like a promising approach to the present or the future. One of the many sad signs of our times is that people are not only playing the race card, they are playing the slavery card, which is supposedly the biggest trump of all. At the so-called Million Man March in Washington, poet Maya Angelou rang all the changes on slavery, 
at a rally billed as forward-looking and as being about black independence rather than white guilt. Meanwhile, best-selling author Dinesh D'Souza was being denounced in the media for having said that slavery was not a racist institution. First of all, anyone familiar with the history of slavery around the world knows that its origins go back thousands of years and that slaves and slave owners were very often of the same race. Those who are ignorant of all this, or who think of slavery in the United States as if it were the only slavery, go ballistic when anyone tells them that this institution was not based on race. Blacks were not enslaved because they were black, but because they were available at the time. Whites enslaved other whites in Europe for centuries before the first black slave was brought to the Western Hemisphere. Only late in history were human beings even capable of crossing an ocean to get millions of other human beings of a different race. In the thousands of years before that, not only did Europeans enslave other Europeans, Asians enslaved other Asians, Africans enslaved other Africans, and the native peoples of the Western Hemisphere enslaved other native peoples of the Western Hemisphere. D'Souza was right. Slavery was not about race. The fact that his critics are ignorant of history is their problem. What was peculiar about the American situation was not just that slaves and slave owners were of different races, but that slavery contradicted the whole philosophy of freedom on which the society was founded. If all men were created equal, as the Declaration of Independence said, then blacks had to be depicted as less than men. While the antebellum South produced a huge volume of apologetic literature trying to justify slavery on racist grounds, no such justification was considered necessary in vast reaches of the world and over vast expanses of time. In most parts of the world, people saw nothing wrong with slavery. Strange as that seems to us today, a hundred years ago only Western civilization saw anything wrong with slavery, and two hundred years ago only a minority in the West thought it was wrong. Africans, Arabs, Asians, and others not only maintained slavery long after it was abolished throughout the Western Hemisphere, they resisted all attempts of the West to stamp out slavery in their lands during the age of imperialism. Only the fact that the West had greater firepower and more economic and political clout enabled them to impose the abolition of slavery as they imposed other Western ideas on the non-Western world. Those who talk about slavery as if it were just the enslavement of blacks by whites ignore not only how widespread this institution was and how far back in history it went, they also ignore how recently slavery continued to exist outside of Western civilization. While slavery was destroyed in the West during the nineteenth century, the struggle to end slavery elsewhere continued well into the twentieth century, and pockets of slavery still exist to this moment in Africa. But there is scarcely a peep about it from black leaders in America who thunder about slavery in the past. If slavery were the real issue, then slavery among flesh-and-blood human beings alive today would arouse far more outcry than past slavery among people who are long dead. The difference is that past slavery can be cashed in for political benefits today, while slavery in North Africa only distracts from these political goals. Worse yet, talking about slavery in Africa would undermine the whole picture of unique white guilt, requiring unending reparations. 
While the Western world was just as guilty as other civilizations when it came to enslaving people for thousands of years, it was unique only in finally deciding that the whole institution was immoral and should be ended. But this conclusion was by no means universal even in the Western world, however obvious it may seem to us today. Thousands of free blacks owned slaves in the antebellum South, and, years after the Emancipation Proclamation in the United States, whites as well as blacks were still being bought and sold as slaves in North Africa and the Middle East. Anyone who wants reparations based on history will have to gerrymander history very carefully. Otherwise, practically everybody would owe reparations to practically everybody else. To a small child, the reason he cannot do many things that he would like to do is that his parents won't let him. Many years later, maturity brings an understanding that there are underlying reasons for doing or not doing many things, and that his parents were essentially conduits for those reasons. The truly dangerous period in life is the time when the child has learned the limits of his parents' control and how to circumvent their control, but has not yet understood or accepted the underlying reasons for doing and not doing things. This adolescent period is one that some people, intellectuals especially, never outgrow. The widespread and fervent use of the word liberation in a wide variety of contexts is one of the signs of the adolescent belief that only arbitrary rules and conventions stand in the way of doing whatever we want to do. According to this vision of the world, the problems of all sorts of individuals and groups women, minorities, homosexuals, children, are to be solved by liberating them from the restraints of laws, rules, conventions, and standards. They are to be liberated even from the threat of adverse judgments by other individuals. We are all to be non-judgmental. Two centuries ago, the great British legal scholar William Blackstone pointed out that there are some laws so old that no one remembers why they existed or what purpose they served then or now. But the bad consequences of repealing some of these laws have often made painfully clear what purpose they served. Some of the painful consequences of various liberations that began in the 1960s have included the disintegration of families, skyrocketing crime rates, falling test scores in school, and record-breaking rates of teenage suicide. A long downward trend in teenage pregnancy and venereal diseases sharply reversed during the 1960s, starting a new trend of escalating teenage pregnancy and venereal diseases, climaxed later by the AIDS epidemic. Sometimes bad things happen because of adverse circumstances, poverty or war, for example. But our post-1960s social disasters occurred during a long period of peace and unprecedented prosperity. Murder rates, for example, were much lower during the Great Depression of the 1930s and during World War II than they became after various liberating changes in the 1960s. One of the signs of maturity is the ability to learn from experience. Some of us have learned, and we have halted or reversed some of the adverse trends. For example, the quest for those elusive root causes of crime, so dear to the political left, has been put aside in favor of locking up more criminals, and the crime rate has declined. 
The left is upset that we have so many people behind bars and lament how much it is costing to keep them there. They do not even bother to estimate how much it would cost to turn them loose. The left has never understood why property rights are a big deal, except to fat cats who own a lot of property. Through legislation and judicial rulings, property rights have been eroded with rent control laws, expansive concepts of eminent domain, and all sorts of environmental restrictions. Some of the biggest losers have been people of very modest incomes, and some of the biggest winners have been fat cats who are able to use political muscle and activist judges to violate other people's property rights. Politicians in cities around the country violate property rights regularly by seizing homes in working-class neighborhoods and demolishing whole sectors of the city in order to turn the land over to people who will build shopping malls, gambling casinos, and other things that will pay more taxes than the homeowners are paying. That's why property rights were put in the Constitution in the first place, to keep politicians from doing things like that. But the adolescent intellectuals of our time have promoted the notion that property rights are just arbitrary rules to protect the rich. Many academics and federal judges are sufficiently insulated from reality by tenure that they never have to grow up. Ronald Reagan, 1911-2004 There are many ways to judge a president or anyone else. One old-fashioned way is by results. A more popular way in recent years has been by how well someone fits the preconceptions of the intelligentsia or the media. By the first test, Ronald Reagan was the most successful president of the United States in the 20th century. By the second test, he was a complete failure. Time and time again, President Reagan went against what the smug smarties inside the beltway and on the TV tube said and time and again he got results. It started even before Ronald Reagan was elected. When the Republicans nominated Governor Reagan in 1980, according to the late Washington Post editor Meg Greenfield, people I knew in the Carter White House were ecstatic. They considered Reagan not nearly smart enough, as liberals measure smart. The fact that Ronald Reagan beat President Jimmy Carter by a landslide did not cause any re-evaluation of his intelligence. It was luck or malaise or something else, liberals thought. Now the media line was that this cowboy from California would be taught a lesson when he got to Washington and had to play in the big leagues against the savvy guys on Capitol Hill. The new president succeeded in putting through Congress big changes that were called the Reagan Revolution and he did it without ever having his party in control of both houses of Congress. But these results caused no re-evaluation of Ronald Reagan. One of his first acts as president was to end price controls on petroleum. The New York Times condescendingly dismissed Reagan's reliance on the free market and repeated widespread predictions of declining domestic oil production and skyrocketing gasoline prices. The price of gasoline fell by more than 60 cents a gallon. More luck, apparently. Where the new president would really get his comeuppance, the smart money said, was in foreign affairs, where a former governor had no experience. Not only were President Reagan's ideas about foreign policy considered naive and dangerously reckless, 
he would be going up against the wily Soviet rulers, who were old hands at this stuff. When Ronald Reagan referred to the Soviet Union as an evil empire, there were howls of disapproval in the media. When he proposed meeting a Soviet nuclear buildup in Eastern Europe with an American nuclear buildup in Western Europe, there were alarms that he was going to get us into a war. The result? President Reagan's policies not only did not get us into a war, they put an end to the Cold War that had been going on for decades. Meanwhile, Soviet Premier Mikhail Gorbachev, who was the media's idea of a brilliant and sophisticated man, had a whole communist empire collapse under him when his policies were put into effect. Eastern Europe broke free, and Gorbachev woke up one morning to find that the Soviet Union that he was head of no longer existed, and that he was now a nobody in the new Russian state. But that was just bad luck, apparently. For decades it had been considered the height of political wisdom to accept as given that the Soviet bloc was here to stay, and its expansion was so inevitable that it would be foolhardy to try to stop it. The Soviet bloc had in fact expanded through seven consecutive administrations of both Republicans and Democrats. The first territory the Communists ever lost was Grenada, when Ronald Reagan sent in American troops. But once again, Results carried no weight with the intelligentsia and the media. Reagan was considered to be completely out of touch when he said that communism was another sad, bizarre chapter in human history whose last pages even now are being written. But how many smart people saw the end of the Soviet Union coming? Ronald Reagan left this country and the world a far better place than he found it, and he smiled while he did it. That's greatness, if you judge by results.